Thanks so much for finding us here at the Morning Glory Project. I'm your host, Betsy Graziani-Fassbender, and my co-producer, Angela Washington, and I are ever so proud and honored to bring the stories of amazing people to you. These are survivors, thrivers, innovators, and trailblazers who tell us not just their stories, but how they got through whatever they got through to get to where they are. We hope you find them as inspiring as we do. Thanks so much for listening and for giving us the honor of your time. I'm ever so happy to welcome to the Morning Glory Project today, Kirsten Micklewaite. And Kirsten has written an amazing, beautiful book called The Ghost Marriage. At 31, Kirsten was ready to pursue a serious career as a writer, and eventually she hoped marriage and family. And when she met Steve Beckwith, a handsome, successful attorney, she began to see the future materialize more quickly than she dared to expect. 22 years later, Steve has become someone quite different from the man that Kirsten first met. Unemployed, addicted to opioids, he uses money and their two children to emotionally blackmail her. The couple separates, but just after their divorce is finalized, Steve is diagnosed with colon cancer and dies within a year, leaving Kirsten with $1.5 million in debt and properties that are no longer her own. As she fights toward recovery, she begins to receive communications from Steve after his passing, leading her on an unexpected path to forgiveness. The ghost marriage is her story of discovery that life isn't limited to the tangible reality we experience on this earth and that our worst adventures can become our greatest teachers. This book is about life after divorce and life after death. It's a story of how forgiveness is the best revenge. And I'm calling this episode on our website, Love After Life. Because that's what it gave to me. Kirsten, this is a beautiful book, The Ghost Marriage, also a beautiful cover, (laughs) and it's very enticing. And I want to tell you that when I first picked the book up and first learned about you, I was a little nervous about this book. I think because I thought it was going to go to, it was just going to be a a whole thing about paranormal life in in a way that was going to be hard for me to hook onto. I'm, I'm open to different ideas, but I was afraid it was going to get, and please forgive me, I was afraid it was going to get a little too woo-woo for me, mm-hmm. you know, just a little too far. And that was not at all my experience. And so I'm, I'm going to ask you, how is it that you came to the title, The Ghost Marriage, and, and what do you mean by that? Thanks for asking, Betsy. That's a great question. I, you know, as you know, as a writer, titles are really difficult to come up with. And I came up with this title about halfway through the writing of it. And I never really considered any other title. Mm. It, It just, to me, it felt perfect. However, since the book has come out, I have had some reviewers say, you know, I thought this was going to be a paranormal book, you know, and you don't get into it until the very end. And I would say to those readers, don't read the title so literally. Mm -hmm. Um, Yes, there is um, some paranormal activity at the very end that helps me process my entire marriage and every all the difficult things I went through. But to me, the ghost marriage refers to the entire 23 years that I knew this man. Um, when I looked back at the end of the story, 
I realized I never really knew this man well at all, that he was someone other than who I had thought he was. A ghost of himself, perhaps? A a ghost of himself, or, um, you know, he had presented himself as someone he wanted to be, Mm. but ended up not being. So to me, the ghost marriage refers to both the actual marriage and the phenomena that I experienced afterwards. And also, I, I want to talk about that term paranormal, because I think that that's gotten mixed up with a whole lot of stuff about vampires and you know mm-hmm. other the way you think of paranormal stories. Paranormal just means beyond normal, right? Beyond what we're commonly experiencing. So this is just mm-hmm. a, another dimension of your experience with this individual and with life and love and afterlife. Yeah. So first, tell me, tell me the arc of this story. Tell me you were in a 22 year marriage. It's not like you tried this for a couple of years and it didn't work out. Tell me about your marriage and tell me about when it began to tumble. So, um, when I met Steve, I was 31 years old. So you were no, you weren't out of high school. You know, this was, you were a mature person. Yeah. I was no ingenue. (laughs) I had just come (laughs) back from, um, a year spent living in Italy. I had a career. I had traveled, I was a very independent woman, Um, but I did come to the place where I realized I did want marriage and a family, and up popped Steve much sooner than I ever expected, and he came from a very traditional background. He'd been married once before. He had four daughters from his first marriage who were Mm. teenagers at that point, Um, but he, he was looking for something different, and I think when he saw me, he sort of saw the life that he wanted, which was sort of more, more urbane. You know, I was involved with the theater and um, I had a career and I think he just kind of settled his targets on me and which is not to say we didn't love each other. He fell in love with me. I fell in love with him. Um, for the first few years, things were mostly great. I mean, he, he was always a very strong personality. Um, but, you know, I had never even lived with a man before. I'd been mm-hmm. so independent. I'd really been afraid to, to make that commitment. And so for me, it was a, a real learning curve of living with someone else, learning to compromise. I had grown up in a very functional family, um, you know, where everything was talked through you know, that's what my parents modeled for me. So here I was living with someone who did not come from that functional background. And I was kind of having to learn on the job. But um, we had two children, Uh, we went through some, some infertility and miscarriages, which was a really um, heartbreaking experience, but something that also bonds you closer together. And then he really wanted to move out of the Bay Area, and we had a house in the Napa Valley, and he just lobbied very strongly to move up there. So I gave up my career and my job, and we moved to this more rural environment, and I became a full-time mom, and he continued to be a working lawyer in the city. Well, here's something that was interesting to me in the story, because it's it's kind of a funny twist because he came from a kind of gender traditional background and was attracted to you because you were different than that. Mm-hmm. You were attracted to him because he sort of had some 
adventuresome qualities and all of that. And yet then what happened is you slipped right back into the sort of gender traditional roles yep. voluntarily. I mean, no one twisted your arm, but at the same time, it was with reluctance and some trepidation that you did that. So then you found yourself in an environment where work was hard to find because there isn't the kind of work that you do in the Napa Valley in the same way. Or Well, and by then I had my second, I had my second child soon after we moved to the Napa Valley. And so I had a newborn and a toddler and Steve was gone the whole well, for a while he tried commuting every day and that just was unsustainable because it's a two two to two and a half hour commute each way. From the Napa Valley to San Francisco. Yes. And so he started staying in the city and I was on my own with these two young kids. So, um, and I did have some help, but it was still, it was still a lot. And yeah, I mean, you make an interesting point. He was attracted to me because I represented this different kind of woman. And yet I don't think he did it deliberately, but the sort of what he lobbied for and what I agreed to was a situation in which I did have to give up my career and I did become a traditional full-time mom and no complaints, you know, raising two children in the Napa Valley. There are worse fates. There are worse fates. We had a very nice lifestyle. You know, I was not complaining. I, you know, as, as someone who'd always had a career, it was a hard adjustment for me to suddenly be just a mom. But believe me, it, it worked out great for everybody for a long time. And um, once the kids got older, I started getting back into my writing. I, I wrote a novel. So for a long time, life was pretty darn good. So tell me how things shifted because the shift in Steve, it didn't happen overnight, of course. So it's not like it was like, boom, one day he was a different person, but the darker parts of himself began to reveal themselves. Mm -hmm. Tell me about that. And you know, you are not the first person to have this, such a thing happen in a long marriage where over time, something gets revealed or amplified or exaggerated or blossoms in whatever ways. And certainly addiction uh, adds to that. But tell me what started to really shift and how how things, because you talk about kind of emotional blackmail in a way, which is way different than than how the marriage began. Tell, tell me a bit about that. Well, it, start, it all started with his work, that he he for quite a while had been saying that he didn't love practicing law anymore. It was a very adversarial um, profession and it was stressful and it was taking years off his life. And this complaint sort of intensified. And I would say, you know, find something else. But, you know, before you do that, we need to scale way, way down. We can't live like this if you're not going to continue to bring in the salary of a top-notch attorney. And all of those conversations would end the same way. He would say, I'm not ready to give up the lifestyle, so I'm going to keep going. But he continued to get more and more unhappy. At the same time, he had back problems that started before I even knew him. He had worked on construction. He'd injured his back. He had a couple of back surgeries over a period of 10 years. And what he never told me 
what he never completely owned up to was that he had become addicted to Vicodin. Um, He did not tell me this until long after we were separated. So that started playing in because that can really affect your moods. Um, You know, I don't know all the symptoms of it, but looking back, I know that was a real contributor. But I think the other thing is, and I didn't make sense of this until the very end of our story and even the writing of the book helped me see this, was that the way he had been raised by his mother, um, he was the golden child of four. He was the only one who went on to college of the four. And then he became an attorney. He became super successful. He was just this crown prince. And he had, even as a child, she had always treated him differently. She had always made him feel like he deserved more. And what that created was a man who, when he wanted something, he didn't stop until he got it. There was a, the quality that I kept coming up against as I was reading is there was, there was an insatiability. Mm Mm-hmm. In him. Exactly. It was, was, you know, we often think, uh, as as I've worked with parents in a clinical capacity over the years, parents that sort of, I've never loved this term, but they spoil their children, right? That they they tend to think, well, if I give them these wonderful things, they'll be so grateful. Mm -hmm. As opposed to, no, they just become insatiable. And then it becomes what's the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. They, they are addicted to the acquisition as opposed to the thing itself. Right. Well, there, there's no satisfaction in the thing itself. Right. There's no, there's no sating them. And, and it seemed that, that he became insatiable in lots and lots of ways. All, all ways, with food, with spending, with hobbies. And our, our therapist, when I first started working with her, she said he, ha- he is a bottomless pit of need that you will never be able to fill. And a bell went off for me when she said that because I realized that is the problem, is nothing is ever going to be enough. You know, we we were constantly buying new houses or cars or motorcycles. Um, He had a, a knife collection that I never did find out how much it was worth. Um, and apparently the Chinese, I think it's the Chinese have a, a term for this. It's called the hungry ghost, mm. which is another sort of tie in to the title of the book. Right. So, but the other thing I realized, Betsy, at much later was that he was raised to become this person who felt, who, who wanted and expected to get everything he wanted but deep down inside, I don't think he felt he deserved it. Well, isn't that, isn't that a weird twist of irony? Because it seems as though there's often this, there's the persona and then there's the reality, right? The persona is the confident, bold, I deserve this, whatever. And it comes from this place of injury or wound or want or lack and that, that is insatiable. It's the same structure as narcissism. Right. On the outside, they seem completely self selfish and egotistical, but inside, they have nothing. You know that's why they need to project this on the world. And um, I, I truly believe. I mean, he never 
we never talked about it, but I truly believe that that was part of who he was because you notice with bullies and I can think of a political figure in our recent past who also follows this pattern of they're bullies, but the second things turn against them, they become the victim. Well, it goes from bully to baby real quick. Yeah. You know, there's a, there's that, and it's almost a whiplash kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. And what lots of folks who find themselves in marriages with somebody who, whether they are diagnosably narcissistic personality disorder or whether they just have ribbons of that quality, there's that, that's where the insatiability is. Is There's a, mm-hmm. like you, your therapist said, bottomless pit of need. I think of it as there's a hole in them and it's, it's like a black hole. It's just, it's just, there's nothing you can do. And it sounds what happened in the marriage. And, and what I loved about your story, Kirsten, is that you take ownership of your own flaws in the book. You aren't, you don't paint yourself as a perfect character, but you also don't you. denigrate yourself. You know, I was such a fool for picking this person. It's like, no, you know, looking back, it makes kind of sense how we picked each other. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's both, a. Uh, a vulnerability in your story about yourself and an ownership for your responsibilities and your own challenges and where you got kind of perfectionistic or pushed harder or had a need for a certain kind of response that you could never get, but that you had a need for that. I think that, I think that a lot of people, I'm going to say people, but it's more often, I think women than men, a lot of women that find themselves in relationships with individuals of this type find they want to make the person completely evil and themselves really good or vice versa. And Mm -hmm. and your story really shows that balance. So as the relationship progressed and, and started to disintegrate, frankly, it just became unbearable and you chose to end it. Tell me about that choice and how you got there and what the end result was. And then I, then I want to branch into you know, you start the book, we're not giving a spoiler here to say that Steve passed away. You tell that in the very beginning of the story. So we know that Steve, uh, Steve has passed. Tell me about, you finally depart from him and you think, I'm finally independent. I'm going to have my life. It's hard enough with yet your kids were teens at this point. Correct. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you're coping and trying to do the, the busted up family story and trying to do it well and he passes. Mm-hmm. Tell me about that and then after. Well, um, the, the year that he was consciously living with cancer, I mean, he'd obviously been living with it for the four years of our separation. That year, he sort of bounced between thinking he was going to die and insisting that he wasn't. And I was increasingly concerned with how am I going to support these? You know, he was, he had stage four colon cancer and the doctor had given him five to six years, but even then, you know, he's not going to be working Well, he he wasn't working, but you know, how am I going to keep this bus moving all by myself? And I, it was very difficult to have conversations with him about money. You know, he would say, that's none of your business. I'll take care of the kids. Don't worry. But he also never to his dying breath forgave me for leaving him. 
Nor did he ever ask for any forgiveness for how he treated you. Correct. Correct. Well, I'd say, I say that because I think that a lot of people, we've got this kind of Hollywood notion of somebody passing and kind of having this huge realization at the end of their life yes. where, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. And I've always loved you. And, you know, there's this kind of this, the music swells and mm -hmm. that's what I was hoping for. <laughs> he died stubborn. Absolutely. And he's, he died punishing me financially and left behind a legacy that was yours to clean up too. Yeah. A big legacy. Yeah. So, and, and I knew that was coming. I mean, that's why I was so afraid to separate and divorce from him because I knew that he would turn on me in this way. I mean, lawyers are formidable and, you know, unfortunately he saw me as the, the prosecution or, you know, the, the opposing side. And he didn't, he didn't give that up until the minute he died. So after he passes, um, you're still, you're discovering the financial messes that you were still on, named on properties that had been not properly paid for, that you're discovering all of this huge debt. And tell me how the, the extra meaning of the ghost marriage comes in at this point. How, how was it that that paranormal experience comes into your Yeah. Life. So within, um, I want to say a week or so of his passing, we were getting signs around the house. My kids were both with me. And one example is the TV was turning on. My daughter would be watching TV and it would flip to a completely different channel to a show that she used to watch with her dad. That kind of stuff. Without her bumping, Without her laying on the anything. remote control, nothing like that. Correct. And it would switch specifically to a program she had watched with him. Yeah. Yeah. Little things like that. You know, light bulbs are common, you know, burning out. Um, I thought of a word, a very obscure Italian word. Um, and I thought, well, if I see this word in a week, within the week, I'll know it's him thinking I would read it, you know, in something. And it appeared on my TV in like two inch letters across the screen. I mean, there's, there's little things like that. I, woke up a couple of times and there, I was sure there was a man in bed next to me. I could feel someone, you know, massaging my neck and someone kind of spooning behind me. And I literally thought, how am I going, you know, there, where's my phone? There is someone in bed with me. And then, you know, as I just sat there paralyzed over a few minutes, realized there's nobody there but I absolutely felt this person in bed with me. That happened a few times. So little things like that. But I was still so angry at Steve. I had been to a psychic a few years before when I was first separated just to kind of have someone tell me it's going to be okay. You know, you're not going to end up on the street. And I've been to psychics through my life only at periods of crossroads or where I felt like I needed some kind of bigger picture. Um, but I, I told him in my mind, I said, I am not going back to Karen because I'm not ready to speak to you. I am not, I don't want to hear it, you know, talk to the hand. Um, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not going to open the channel. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You know, la, 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 la. But, um, I finally felt like, and I, I should say, 
I was also doing a lot of work on my own. I was working with a spiritual life coach and I was meditating and I was praying and I was reading books and trying to make sense of what had happened and work with my own anger. Well, and that, that's the other thing that I really loved about this story, Kirsten, it, because it wasn't like things were really terrible and crappy and I went to a, a psychic and boom, got the answer and that was everything fixed. Yeah. To me, and, and I don't know what I believe about the afterlife. I One day I sort of think it's one way and the next day I sort of think it's another way and it's all theory and we're all only guessing until we get to the other side, I guess. But what I loved about your story was this was just one thing that you were doing to recover. Mm -hmm. It wasn't like, I'm I'm just going to put all of my bank in with a psychic who's going to tell me everything's wonderful. You were doing all the other work. Mm -hmm. You were doing the practical earthly work of building a business and doing those things to take care of the financial matters. You were doing the internal spiritual work with meditation, with growth, with all of that. You were reading, you were learning, you were writing, you were doing all that stuff. And the, the paranormal exploration that you did and the openness that you had to it was simply to me, if see if I'm catching this right from you, it seemed like it was just one more facet of the recovery process and the healing process for you. Yes, but it was a key point because I finally got to the point where I believe um, based on my own previous work and my own um, previous readings with psychics, that when we pass, we become our higher selves again. We're no longer the horrible, flawed, you know, people we hear. I mean, we're working on this earth to become better people. But when we go over to the other side, I believe we're pure soul again. We're, we're like we were when we came into the world as, as babies. And um, I was really curious if that was true for Steve and if he still felt all the horrible things about me on the other side that he did on this side, I basically wanted an apology from him, honestly, Betsy, mm-hmm. because he never gave me one on this side. And I was curious if I would get one. And I did. I mean, I had a complete conversation with him. He, I, I don't want to, um, you know, spoil this part of the book, but he explained that we had had a contract to work together, that we had agreed to work together. And by contract, you don't mean your marriage. You mean that that there was a spiritual contract. A soul contract. Right. Before we came in. And that I had chosen, that I had asked him to help me learn these lessons. Mm. And that I taught him lessons as well. And when you see it from that standpoint... It's incredibly liberating that you can no longer blame this other person and say, you know, I'm going to go to my grave angry at him because of the way he treated me. Rather, maybe I learned something from this and Mm. maybe it was a gift that we did this work together. And it can be a gift if you don't hold on to the bitterness, if you move through it. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll tell you again, I'm still in the, I don't know quite everything that I believe mm-hmm. status. And, and I think lots of us are like that. We sort of, we're trying to understand, but I do know this. I've always believed 
that every relationship I have, the good ones, the terrible ones, the flawed ones, the incomplete ones, the busted mm-hmm. up ones, I believe that we co-create them. Yes. I don't think it's something somebody did to me. I've always believed that every relationship I have is co-created and that I guess you're calling it a soul contract. And, and I think of it as this uh, series of lessons I'm to learn mm-hmm. and that, that my goal at the end of each relationship, whether it ends on earth or whether it ends because someone parts or I leave, that I learn whatever the lesson is that I'm to learn there. And the difference what you do in the ghost marriage is that you also say it, that learning doesn't have to stop at the end of the life, mm-hmm. that there is love after life and forgiveness after life and understanding and all of those things. I'm wondering if we have just another moment or two, uh, if you'd read just a couple of paragraphs that come toward the end of, at the end of the book, but please readers know, please read the whole book because this is not a spoiler. It's just sort of more about what Kirsten and I have been speaking about, but it's so eloquently written if you, if you wouldn't mind. Thank you. I see things differently now. I've learned that life on this earth isn't a vacation. It's a university. It's where we come to learn specific lessons and we choose partners and families and friends to help us learn those lessons. One of the universal lessons for all of us, I've discovered, is to experience love and joy. Not conditionally when everyone's behaving and the bank account is full, but unconditionally when people disappoint us, or when we barely have enough money to cover next month's mortgage. Our adversaries are often our greatest teachers, and sooner or later, we must learn to bless them. But here's something else I've figured out. Until all this happened, I'd thought of myself as an incredibly lucky person. Great parents, raised in an affluent, educated town with plenty of options, a first-class education, a stimulating career, and for many years, a happy marriage to an extraordinary man with two beautiful, healthy children. When that luck seemed to run out, I fought back. I chose not to give up, but to survive and to protect my children. Now I look back and realize that I actually engineered most of that earlier good luck myself. The common denominator in my whole lifetime of positive experiences, it turns out, was me. My marriage was a strong wind that blew across that path, scattering challenges and blessings in its wake. A murmuration of starlings, the sunlight in blinding shards across a bay, a circle of clasped hands around a table, a world of messy, confounding chaos. I can see every memory, hear every voice, and hold them close in equal measure. Kirsten Nicolway, thank you so much. Thank you for writing The Ghost Marriage and for sharing this conversation with me. I know that lots of people who have relationships that break can gain a great deal from this story. So thank you so much. And thank you for being part of the Morning Glory Project. Thank you, Betsy. It's been such a pleasure. After reading Kirsten Micklewaite's book and having my conversations with her reading The Ghost Marriage, I started thinking about ghosts. 
And you know, the thing about ghosts is that not all of them are dead. <laughs> that some of the ghosts that haunt me from past relationships are with people that are still living, but that I can't connect to for one reason or another, either because they're not available or it's not so healthy for me to do that. And those kind of haunt me sometimes. And it's also really easy to have kind of revisionist history in our brains, kind of rewriting the relationship so that we're sort of the hero of our own story and they were the villain. But I really have come to believe every year I live even more so that every relationship is co-created, that we select each other by accident or intention, and that we have lessons to learn from one another. Kirsten explores the idea of finding resolution even after her ex-husband had passed away. And whatever you may or may not believe about whether the paranormal part of that is possible, I do think it's possible and in fact often necessary to find resolution with somebody whether or not you're able to connect with them face-to-face or voice-to-voice. And that in so doing, looking honestly at that relationship, taking ownership of whatever part of it didn't work, gleaning whatever lessons there were to glean from it and recognizing our own part is how we can find what some people might call forgiveness, others might call closure. But there's always something to learn even after the relationship can no longer take place in the world that we understand best. Sometimes it's an emotional journey, psychological, and in some cases a spiritual one as well. I'm going to take that as my extra bloom. And I hope that wherever you are, that you find your way to find the sun, to find the peace, and to bloom.